0: Let's real quick talk about COVID. You're talking about how hard it is right now to buy properties at the right price. Yeah. What
1: are you how are you preparing and what are you preparing for? All of this money just got pumped into the economy. Yeah. The people that know how to invest will continue to know how to invest. The people that don't know how to invest will continue not to know how to invest. It's it's sad but true, right? Yep. You are listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast.
0: If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys. Thank you for joining me on the show. I appreciate you being here. Welcome back. If you've been here before, if you haven't, then welcome to this show for the first time. My name is Mike Simmons. I am your host, and I'm excited to bring you the episode... That I have teed up for you today, guys. I spoke, I talked to another really smart guy, a guy who is just crushing it in our industry. He came from the tech side of things, uh, just an entrepreneur at heart with a tech background. And after initially beginning investing in single-family homes, which a lot of us do, he decided to scale up and go to apartment complexes. He started a company called Disrupt Equity, cool name, uh, and he's focusing on multifamily acquisitions at this point. And uh, he has uh, he's raised millions of dollars from multifamily syndications and. New nearly 2,000 Unit so far. He's not been in the game that terribly long, but he really knows his stuff. And like I said, he came from the tech industry and just has some great ideas about how to pull some of us out of the stone age and how we do things. And he's using technology to streamline his processes. And just a smart guy who knows a lot about real estate investing, multifamily, even we talk about some single family stuff, like he's sort of done it all in that space. And uh, he's just running a great business. He's a smart guy. His name is Ferris Musa, And I was was excited to talk to him, guys, and I'm not going to make you wait any longer. Let's dive into the meat of this. Let's talk to Ferris. All right. Without any further delay, Ferris Musa. All right, Ferris, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you doing this and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to our listeners.
1: No, thanks, Mike, for having me. Appreciate it. Glad yeah,
0: to of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So for those of you, those of us, those are the listeners who don't know who you are. I do because we just met, but uh, I, I do a lot of research and I try to find out who I'm talking to before I hop on. Um, some podcasters go cold, totally cold. I can't do that. I like to have some idea of who I'm talking to and what their what their background looks like. But for those of us who don't know, why don't you give people a brief background on who you are, where you come from, what your background is professionally, and if if anything before real estate, and then kind of
1: transition at how you got into real estate. No, I absolutely happen to. I mean, you know, for me, I'm the tech to real estate guy, right? You probably heard that story many times. And, you know, for me, I mean, I grew up in Texas, in Houston specifically, went to college and did computer science, always been an entrepreneur at heart, had my own little web company back in high school. And you know, always knew I'd get into kind of that space in one way or another, right? And so I, I like to say I accidentally went to career fair, gave out some resumes, and because I had a web company, you know, attracted the bigger companies, right? I had something to show, whereas other people, you know, at that point in their life, most people hadn't done much. And right. so accidentally did an internship, you know, at Microsoft, right, loved it. and you know, I was kind of weighing, what do I do? And I decided, all right, three years in a am That's what I told myself. So three years, you know, kind of go get that on my resume, go get that experience and then, you know, move on and go do my own thing. And so ended up being three and a half years, but I did leave Microsoft, you know, uh, left on really good terms as kind of, it was that extra half year because I wanted to make sure I left at the right point in time in the release cycle where no one is, you know, not ruffling any feathers and, um, you know, left and kind of had my own software company for several years. And, like a lot of people, was starting to explore different ways to invest, right? And, you know, obviously coming from the tech world, stocks is the thing everyone thinks about. But, yep. you know, I was looking for a different opportunity. Let me stop and,
0: you real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah. I, just real quick. What was your, you said you had a, a software company for a while mm-hmm. when you left Microsoft. What was that software company? What'd you do? Yeah, so,
1: I mean, initially we were, we were building, we were kind of identifying gaps within various app platforms, right? And we had our own system that was literally doing a million API calls to Microsoft today, kind of collecting analytics, trying to figure out what apps are trending and is an app would compete with. Okay. And so that went really well. And then at the end of it, kind of that third year, we doubled down and built property management software, right? I was starting to do the real estate at the same time. And I kind of saw that gap and that ended up not working out, but that was kind of the focus of that. Can I ask what gap did you see in the in that so market? So the property, I mean, yeah, good question. So initially the thing that I was saying at the time I had, I don't know, five rentals maybe, and there was not a good tool for anyone to kind of track and keep Really monitor the portfolio. Yeah. I went to a lot of events. The only other guy, I don't, and there's only one other guy, his name is Greg that I know. He was the only other guy that could tell me what his real cash of cash was on his properties. No one else really had a good system. Me and him are very analytical. Yeah. But there was kind of really an you know a simple tool to help owners that are, you know, kind of in that one to 10 unit range, right? The 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 not newbie but not sophisticated owners, right? Yeah. Go manage your portfolio, collect rents, and then kind of fill that gap. And I think the gap was definitely there. We just ended up pivoting trying to do property management full blown because it's, you know, a much bigger bang for the buck. And yeah. now that we have our own management company here at Disrupt Equity, I realize all of the mistakes that we were making, like we would have <laughs> never been able to compete in hindsight. What were so, some of those mistakes? Tell people what what were some of the things that you did I wrong? I mean, it's, I guess, so for us, you know, initially for the person, you know, the, the, the non-sophisticated person, right? They, Excel was our competitor, right? And we can compete with Excel because we can flush it out, provide yeah. a lot of kind of the right tooling. Well, and, you know, those guys aren't using anything. So the the barrier of entry is really low for them, right? Yeah. Now with a property management company, the first thing to realize is, I mean, that that software is the core of that company. So ripping it out, it's like ripping out a heart and trying to put a new one in. It's not yeah. very easy, yeah. right? And even get them to want to make the change, right? I mean, there's a lot of friction. So I think really glossing over that. And so then we realize, okay, our customer is going to be the companies that are smaller, that are growing, they'll grow into us, right? We're not yeah. going to be able to go get anyone off of what they're using, well, to grow into us, you realize these property management softwares are not just one piece of software. It's really 10 different things brought into one from accounting, from, you know, leasing to, you know, uh, just vendor and maintenance. I mean, there's a lot of pieces. And so yeah. while we had, I like to say we were the hummer at the things that we did, but we just didn't have enough of the breath, even okay. though we thought we did. Right. Once yeah. I realized what large property management is about.
0: Yeah. And then you, back then you said you, you also did property management itself. Like you tried to branch off into that too.
1: I self-managed. So yeah, I mean, maybe kind of go back to the story a little bit, right? So software company was going on, I was looking for a place to deploy my, 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 my real estate, sorry, my, my kind of money. And I yeah. kind of really almost, you know, I knew about real estate, but I've kind of stumbled into it. And you know, it's funny because I was still back in Seattle at the time. Before I moved back to Houston, I had a fourplex I had already found because that's the thing everyone talks about and all the shit, all the those, right? We'll find a fourplex. Well, Houston doesn't really have a lot of fourplexes because land is so cheap, but I did find a good fourplex and coincidentally, it's about a mile and a half from my office now. It's a small world, but, uh, (laughs) you know, bought that before I moved back to Houston, got a taste for that and then bought a bunch more houses, right? And, you know, and then that's where at the same time was kind of had the property management software going and I was self-managing those houses. And then, you know, maybe to kind of tie the story all the way through, just realize it doesn't scale. Yeah. Right. For those of your listeners that have a rental portfolio, it sucks. I mean, you know, you get, (laughs) you know, I had 12 units and you have 12 different insurance policies, 12 different loans. Each loan is different. Each insurance policy is different. Loans get sold to other companies. Plus, I mean, I actually didn't have much friction on the tenant side. So I was lucky in that sense, right? Had, you know, better quality tenants. I screened them, didn't have a lot of churn. And so that part was easy, but it's just all the other minutia. Yeah, And, you know, while you can be very successful with rentals, right, not the dog on that, it just didn't scale very well, right, in my mind. and So that's okay. ultimately kind of found out about multifamily and just going off and doing my own kind of larger apartments and, you know, started disrupt equity and the, the rest is kind of history from there. Okay. So what made you specifically,
0: you just said it doesn't scale well, but what did you see in the, in the apartment market that you loved so much that you didn't have in the individual, you know, residential house market. Yeah. So, so
1: no, maybe to answer that question a little differently. So what we do today is syndication, right? What I love about it is three things. It's a numbers game, right? Which you have that in the residential side, mm-hmm. right? But the difference is you can't do things like forced appreciation, right? And, you know, that's a problem. Whereas in commercial, I can literally almost, you know, we call it forced appreciation. I know if I go in do this business plan and, you know, just the simplest example, we have a deal actually we're selling right now. 30 down units that we had brought online. We're going to home run that deal because we knew if we brought the units online and got them rented, we would increase the income so significantly, right? And the way commercial is valuated, it's valued on income. And so you can't do that in residential. That was a big one, right? Finding, you know, 30 houses or let's just use an example of, you know, for buying a 200 unit apartment complex, finding 200 houses to buy is a lot harder than finding one 200 unit apartment complex, right? So that's kind of, it's really, there's a lot of closings, a lot of transactions in the real estate residential side, whereas on commercial, you know, it's kind of more dense. And, you know, I think the obvious one too, to people is just dedicated team, right? You know, these properties, we have dedicated staff that are on the property, in some cases live in the property, right? And they're, you know, helping, it's a team, it's more of a leadership type of thing versus, hey, me doing all the grunt work. And yes, you know, some people have systematized, you know, house rentals and they have their own team, but it's, you know, you gotta really look at it. Even if you have that one employee that goes to 10 different houses, that's a lot of time wasted in transit. And so for me, it was kind of the, the mix of those things that just made commercial a lot more attractive. And so to me, it's a numbers, people and systems game. Okay. And so I think systems was the other big one, at least for us, it's been a big part of our success is just being disruptive, right? And sorry for the pun, but yeah, finding things that are, it's a really inefficient market. Okay. Right? And, 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 and sorry to kind of maybe i hopping around a little bit, but you just maybe gave me a good thought is that okay. <laughs> back to the software thing. The reason, the, the reason I left Microsoft was to figure out, you know, there's a lot of smart people that are working on tech problems at tech companies. Very few of them go into old industries like real estate. And so I always from the get go, my vision was to go off and go to some of these dated industries and apply the things that are almost the norm in tech. Yeah. And into some of these other industries. And yeah. you know, I've kind of since done that with the way we've kind of been able to grow.
0: Yeah. It's funny. When you have that philosophy, I think it's it's like for you coming from tech, like you said, it's like of course, this is standard, op- this is just standard in, in tech industry, but you go into an industry that's a little bit behind the times. It's like you, you're revolutionary you, when you're just doing something oh. that in other industries is pretty pedestrian, right? Um, it, not to say what you're doing is pedestrian, but you know what I mean? It's just- No, you, no, no, no. I mean, even the minds. simplest
1: thing, I'll give you the, the simplest, this is like one of the first eye openers for me, our email templates. Our email templates, several years ago, we were the first ones to have beautiful, mobile friendly, you know, we call them dynamic responsive email templates. All the other ones, like all the updates from other operators, they were cruddy. I mean, I've invested in several days and I saw them all. And so then we started sending these out and it was funny to see everyone all of a sudden try to react and try to almost like some of them you can tell were copies of ours <laughs> straight up. And, but that's a simple thing. Whereas tech, yeah. I mean, come on, responsive email is like one-on-one type of thing, right? And, yeah. you know, even another good example is Slack. I mean, I've been using Slack for, geez, since it first came out, like you know, six, seven years. Yeah. Well, I mean, most guys are just now starting to adopt Slack, and you know, we've, I mean, even on our management side, we've we've forced the teams to use that type of collaboration. We've since moved everyone to Teams for a different reason, but you know, that's just something yeah. that again, everyone in tech knows what Teams and Slack are. Yeah. Yeah. Most people in real estate still don't know what they are, right? I and mean, the ones yeah. that do, it's it's been a new thing the past year, year and a half.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, even like. <laughs> pay-per-click which has been around forever right i mean I, there's still a lot of investors i talk to them who they'll go what is what's what's ppc what's pay-per-click i don't yeah. understand that. <laughs> what is so let me ask you a couple questions let me let me go back to the the reasons why you like uh, the syndication game and in these apartment complexes, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna approach this from someone who has rentals in single family. I don't have mm-hmm. apartments, and this isn't me arguing with you. It's more like I want to just what, what's important to me is the people who are listening to this who are going, hey, wait a minute, what about this? I just at least want to get these thoughts out in the open and have you address them from your perspective, right? Yeah. So let's talk about. And I'm not going to get into the super deep weeds, but let's just do some of the high-level ones that you hear single-family home folks arguing all the time. And uh, number one is uh, renters who rent single family homes have more of the home ownership feel. Therefore they'll stay longer. They have more home pride. They can store things. So it means they're a little bit more likely to not want to be transient because they have a basement or a garage full of things and their kids are playing in the yard. And, you know, they have all those things that make them feel like they they own a home or they're in an actual home because they are. And, and so you have people who stay around longer and they take better care of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally a valid point, right? It's not that there's right and wrong. And I think people, you know, it's not like, you know, no, 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 no. no. To me, it's a numbers game, though, right? It's part, I mean, we bake in what it costs us to turn. And guess what? Whenever we do renewals and we get people to stay and, you know, we give them a, you know, we get them, let's just say we offer to install a ceiling fan and re put a, you know, new paint for them. Yeah. That's cost us $500. It's better for them to renew at the $100 a month premium than it is to spend the $1,000 that we already budgeted. Yeah. And so for us, investments are more of a numbers thing. And yeah. to your point, though, the flip side of that is a renter in a house is is likely to be able to outgrow that and go buy a house at some point. Yeah. Whereas an apartment, right? The income thresholds are different. And you know, honestly, if you you build the right community, this is this is something we even talk about that I really enjoy about what we do is that we can turn you know rough deals into communities. And I mean, I mean that holistically in terms of places people want to go and stay and yeah. they you know a good apartment actually tenants there will continue to renew right and because you've built a, a nice place in a good area that they want to stay at yeah. and they will actually police the other tenants which is the great part about it right as you got kind of to do that and so yeah. they will say well so and so well he left that bag of trash guess what and so you know i think i guess to me it's a, it's, a, it's more about the numbers of it if it supports it yeah, and then, you're right. You know, and there's kind of a other side of the coin there. Yeah,
0: um, you're right. And I like I like what you said about, and it's true, right? So this is one of those things that you have to consider if you're a single family person. The single family renters typically, or a lot of times, they are eventually, they want to get into their own home. So they're almost predestined to leave because ultimately they want to own their own home. A lot, of, not always, but a lot of times. How do you, and I'll, I'll phrase this differently so it's not more like a, uh, combative framing. But how do you look at um, diversity? And I don't mean diversity in the people who you rent to. I mean diversity in the location, meaning you buy an apartment building and it's in a location that's pretty good, maybe even is getting better, and something happens and goes the other direction. Now you have, you know, 150 of these units that you can't, you know, there's with single family. Sometimes you can buy in different towns, different areas, you can diverse your risk in terms of an area kind of going bad for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, with apartments, you're you know, you're not moving the apartment and you have a bunch of them basically stacked on top of each other, a bunch of people. So how do you, when you're evaluating a property, an apartment complex, what is your, if any, your thought process on where it's located, crime rates, income, all those kind of things?
1: Yeah. So I'll say three things I want to say maybe to that. The first one is any deal we're evaluating, it's constantly about, you know, looking at the big macro fundamentals and then drilling down on each step you're taking risk out of the equation. Yeah. Right. And so we do look at all of those things and, you know, as well as price, because I'll buy a deal anywhere. Right. And that maybe goes to my second point, which is you know, there is money to be had no matter where you are. I mean, you know, we, our traditional models have been in the C value add, CB value add. There's also money to be made in A space, right? we will kind of class A apartments. And so to me, it's about kind of weighing the risk and then the reward together. And then maybe kind of the, the third piece of that is, this is maybe what allows syndication to be really powerful, right? Because instead of me, let's just use an example, right? If you want to buy a $10 million apartment, that's $2 million, $3 million that you have to bring to closing. So instead of me putting two, three million of my own money into that deal, and now I'm very much doubling down on that area, like you said, and there's things that I'll never be able to control, right? The city decides to plop down a highway and, you know, I can't do anything about that, right? right. And so instead of me kind of having to bet all in on that, well, syndication kind of helps people glom together, you know, funds into one larger vehicle that you are all then going forward on, right? But everyone's taking a smaller piece of risk. And so I think True. that's what's beautiful, that syndication. It helps kind of, Mitigate that problem because okay. you know you have that problem no matter what type of real estate you do.
0: Okay, are you buying all the, the properties that you buy locally or in your state, or
1: are you all over the United States or all over? No, we're, I mean, we're our, our main market, so we're based here in Houston, but we have properties throughout Texas and in Georgia. It's kind of our other market, and we want to get into Florida, but I can't find a deal. So, Mike, if you know a good deal in Florida, <laughs> let us know. Okay, <laughs> we'll do. It. Hey,
0: if anybody out there knows a good deal in Florida, reach out. We'll yeah. give you some contact info at the end here. So, um, how do you? How do you use technology to help people, and how do you identify good opportunities? Like, what are how are you using that tech background to kind of aid you in this in this venture?
1: Oh man, that's a, that's a great question. So, I mean, we use it every step of the way that I can possibly think about it, and you know, and I think a good example is really on the management side, right? So, what we've been able to do. So, you know, obviously, we're buying apartments. As we've grown, we've since started our own management company for our own assets, right? And that's now it's doing third party. And what's been you know, differentiating about it is just how much we use tech to really give visibility. I think the big problem with the real estate is that it's, because it's an older industry, there's, there, I mean, there's n- very little transparency. So we've kind of yeah. taken the opposite approach of how do we modernize every step of the way from the way our maintenance guys do a move out, update units and move in and get all that documented to getting that to owners, right? Simple yeah. things like getting you know, our, are even having it like, I guess, VAs is a good example. We literally have a team of VAs that help with all steps of the way, because guess what? The more of the routine that we can take off of an on-site managers kind of plate, the more that manager can focus on the things they're actually good at. Yeah. They're not, you know, spending time on invoices. That's not a good use of a manager's time working with tenants is right. Mm-hmm. And so really thinking that across the board, where if you have a resource that, It's not as expensive, but can be used to help audit, help kind of organize. I mean, you can really start to run with it. Yeah, And even, I mean, maybe one other big one too is just Asana. The concept of task management. I've had six different management companies that we've used. None of them have a centralized way to track and document what comes up on these calls. Yeah. Whereas for us, I mean, we've kind of gotten that systematized. We use Asana, but there's a million of these different types of tools, but, you know, getting that level of accountability between owners, between clients, between the property management companies. So, yeah. you know, just kind of thinking down that, that process, right? I guess, because at Microsoft, I was on the project management side and I like to say syndication is project management on steroids, right? Yeah. And so really thinking and kind of being in tune with who's who should be working on what are they moving forward? Are they stalled? Right. And how do we help them block them? Right. And what's yeah. really, you know, what's taking their time and can we kind of rejigger things? Okay. And oh, so
0: let me ask yeah. you this real quick. I have I have a question that's going to take a little longer and a quicker one. Asana versus Slack. What's the difference? Why do you use both? And the reason I'm asking this is a little bit off topic, but you're a tech guy, and I, I literally just had this discussion in my uh, my mastermind company, and we were like, we're using Asana, and somebody's like, well, what about Slack? And we're like, wait a minute, why are we? We don't need two, so we're going to two different. places. So we really had this debate a bunch of not, a bunch uh, a bunch of non tech people having this debate. Yeah. So what is the
1: difference? Why do you use both? Great question. Then let's add an email to that too, just to help really solidify Perfect. that. Right. right. <laughs> when should I use email? When should I use Slack? it's kind of confusing. So, yeah. uh, you know, Slack, the easiest way to think about it is, is it's a replacement for your texting, right? right? No longer are you guys texting all over the place and because text is not reliable, right? I don't know if people know that, right? The delivery is not guaranteed. Whereas, you know, with web tech, like Slack, you can Now Slack and email are both a endless stream of communication right? Mm -hmm. That's ultimately what they are. There's just, you know, there's things coming in, coming, coming, coming in, right? Now, with a tool like Asana, you can distill all that into the actual tasks that need to happen, right? So, you know, the way to think about Asana is it's more tasked, more action items, types of pieces, right? Okay. Now, email is kind of that, but not enough people have enough email etiquette, right? I mean, I learned very early on at Microsoft how to work emails and be very, like, I I never miss an email. My team knows that there's, Never an email that I, I, at some point I'll get back to it. I'll maybe bomb. I don't get to for weeks. But my email is very, you know, I treat it like a task list. Yeah. Okay. Right? So Asana is kind of a more simpler way for people to do that. Now the question then becomes: When do you use Slack? When do you? Uh, sorry, when do you do email versus Asana? That's kind okay. of a trickier thing. But Asana is really you break down projects into tasks. You give them as ownership. You get comment history, right? Because if you really think about an email, what happens in an email? People send it. Maybe there's not a reply. There's not really visibility from people that are, that should be on that project. Cause let's say you could work on something 15 people, right? They should all have an idea of it, but you know, you wouldn't send that email to 15 people, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it gives people kind of sit passively. And then maybe the last thing, and this is what might drive home for you, Mike, is, as you evolve in that kind of mentality, what Slack becomes though, is it becomes your hub for communication and knowing what's happening in your business. And this is the, that's the peak that I think a lot of people struggle to. So, you know, we had integrations on Slack. I mean, I have things like where whenever a review gets posted on any of our property, it automatically gets posted into a Slack channel, right? Whenever, uh, what's a good example, you know, I had Slack integrated with Asana. So I did have a pulse on what projects, what comments are happening, all of that. Okay. Um whenever uh uh whenever someone maybe completes a form and a contact on our website, it'll automatically come into Slack. And so you start to tie these things and so as kind of a person heading up a company, you don't need to know every little thing that's happening, but you need to have a good pulse on it. And so it becomes your your command hub over time if you build it out appropriately.
0: Okay. So that was one thing I was gonna ask you is does Slack integrate with Asana so that you're having these conversations in Slack. You don't have this conversation that lives over here. These comments are over here in Asana and you don't know how to connect the two so they can integrate. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So the, the that was actually the short question. The, the longer one was, and maybe this one will be short. I don't know. You mentioned that you have a team of VAs, right? VAs in real estate is like this it seems ever since the four-hour work week, right, it's like this holy grail that people keep getting wrong and getting frustrated. Here's my take on it, and you tell me how you guys utilize VAs. My take, and every you know, every region and area can be a little bit different, but I'm just going to talk about VAs from the Philippines because that's where a lot of people go and because it's very economical. What I have found is if you have a, a very – linear straightforward task that's well defined and doesn't allow for a lot of variables you can do it and it can work but outside the box thinking kind of thinking on your feet so to speak or come using some deductive logic to kind of come up to the with their own decision about how things should be done is not necessarily a great result that's what i've seen at least so it's been for me it's been frustrating because Almost everything has some variability to it where you have to be able to, you know, kind of use some, you know, just think independently on it. So how do you use VAs and, and how are they best utilized in your company?
1: Yeah, so that frustration that you're talking about, because that's the very first layer of the onion. And you're right. But then that leads to maybe you don't have the right VAs, right? And there's kind of a couple things to just account for. The very simple things is, yeah, the things that are very simple, routine, go to this website, look for this thing, paste that here, send this email. Those are simple, yeah. but then you have to kind of start to evolve and break down things, right? And I'll give you an example. We've systematized our entire takeover checklist for property management. So whenever we take over our property, right, there's a lot of things that have to happen. But guess what? My VA knows how to get certain documents from the owners. knows how to contact our bank and get that bank account spun up. knows how to send the e-sign. I mean, there's a lot more complexity happening there. And they can think on their feet, but you can't just lob it over. And I think that's what yeah. people think. Cause you know, imagine a person that you hired in the office, you can't just lob it off to them either. They're probably sitting next to you. You're walking through what you're doing and spending time teaching that person. Yeah. I think not enough people spend the time to teach a VA, some of these things yeah. because they're very capable, but you have to teach them. And there is very much a process to kind of helping train them. And then the other part of that, too, is documentation, documentation, documentation. Internally, we use Confluence, and so that's very much a tech thing, but think of it as an internal Wikipedia. And so I in Asana, we have all the tasks the VAs work on. Each task has a corresponding Confluence page that documents how to complete that task. And as things change, as we find, oh, we, we skip the step, let's go, we go update that, right? And, you know, what's fun to me is whenever I teach a VA how to do something in person, like on, you know, on Zoom or something, yeah. then I ask them to go document it. So that way they're doing that part of it. And yeah. that way it can become more of a gas pedal approach where I can, you know, adjust kind of resources pretty easily because I know this thing is almost clear enough that anybody can go complete it. But it's work. There's very much a process that needs to happen sure. to kind of get that effective.
0: And I'm a lobber. I'll just admit it. I'm a lobber. I've lobbed things and expected you yeah. know good results. And that's obviously not a great thing. Um, so uh, do you use a, a service to find VAs? Do you find them yourself? You find it's We interview them ourselves. You interview them so ourselves. You know, there's different
1: websites, but we definitely interviewed them ourselves. And, you know, when mm-hmm. we told them, hey, you know, we pay them well, actually, probably too well sometimes. <laughs> I was talking to our co- co-friend, Chris, that I mentioned last week. And, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, he... he, he think I'm paying mine well, but I mean, I want that. I want the cream of the crop, right? I've learned as I've grown, it's better to pay up for an A than to pay down for a B period. That's my new, my new epiphany, the past, you know, I'd say past year and a half. And so, you know, we pay and I'm by, by paying more, I'm telling we're paying a buck more, right? I mean, yeah. but that's not really much cost on us, but it is a big difference on their side. And And so you almost said it, you
0: almost said it. What, what do you pay your VAs? Can you say it? Is it a big, 7.50 Big deal.
1: 7.50 an hour, 6, you know, between 7, between 6.50 to 7.50 an hour. Okay. So okay. kind of 6.50 to 8. I mean, it depends. I mean, there's one of them, a few of them are like rock, rock stars. I'm like, man, you know, I'll continue to pay because yeah. they're just producing. Right? Yeah. 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 And so, um, you know, and I'm happy to pay and they're happy to get it because they care about the job. I mean, the, the sense of care about the job and pride of it is actually important. Yeah. And we have our VAs on our video calls with the team. I mean, we get them part of the team and, and I tell them, I promise I'm going to do this maybe next year. I'm going to fly the entire team from here out to Philippines. We're going to go hang out with all of our, you nice. know, do what's kind of a company thing, That'd but probably
0: be a blast man. and cost effective for the company. Cause I think you can yeah, probably and so do it's a about lot incorporating more.
1: Incorporating them into the culture, right? Yeah. They need to feel like they're part yeah. of the team and they work us hours, right? That's part of the requirement, but they're, you know, they're used to it, but you know, they enjoy it. Right. I mean, you want to make it to where they love what they're doing and, the same time, they have kind of a go-to way to get help, right? Yep. It's not about just lobbying, so you have to really, you know, you have to plan for it, right? It's work. I mean, on our side, it's absolutely work to do yep. that, so. Yep.
0: Do your VAs work for you exclusively? I mean, do they work full-time? Yeah, okay. and that's actually
1: that's actually a very good point that I, I kind of glossed over. You, you should, anyone hiring VAs, guys, I mean, seven bucks an hour, full-time, do the math, what is that, 20 grand a year, 30 yeah. grand a year? Yeah, not even. You should have your VAs work full-time for you, because if you get in a situation where they're kind of juggling between two, three things, that's whenever problems happen because then you don't know what's on their plate and are they actually doing it or not? I mean, that's a bigger problem. So, for us, you know, we, we we expect them to work for only us, right? Full-time. Yeah. So they're available during kind of US work
0: hours. S- $7 an hour, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year is $14,000. So it's way yeah. cheaper than even <laughs> you were throwing out there. So, I, okay, let me ask a dumb question now. How do you know when you pay your VA $7 an hour and you, they tell you they're working full-time for you that they're not working for three other companies at the same time? It's
1: funny. So, so for us, the, the the service that we've hired them through is Upwork. Okay. Upwork actually has a little kind of client installed on their computer where it actually sends screenshots. We don't audit it though. I mean, you know, once you have a VA going, you just, yeah. you know, you trust them. It's just yeah. like any other employee, yep. but the, it's there for most of not one of them didn't have it, but, um, it's very much there if we needed it, but yeah. you know, it goes back to the system. And I mean, they're either getting things done or they're yep. not, and it should be pretty apparent, right? So this right. goes back to Asana, yep. right. And using Asana appropriately.
0: I, I love that. And I I asked the question, not because I think it's necessarily valid. I just know how people think when they hear this kind of stuff. So you're absolutely right. I have the same philosophy. To a point, I don't care what's happening as long as I'm getting the work out of them that I expect to get in a 40 hour week. Like, you know, if you have a VA who just can crush more than they're exceeding your expectations, getting everything done, and they're only, you know, for whatever reason, they only work 30 hours
1: one week. Like, I don't know. Do you, do you really care if things are getting yeah. done? It's when things yeah, aren't getting yeah. done. I have someone that, yeah, I mean, they're getting all their stuff done. I mean, I I don't care if they work one hour a week. I mean, if they're getting everything done and, you know, they figured it out by all means, you know, I don't, I don't want a person that i have to micromanage. Yep. That's yeah. the, that's that's more cost than give letting
0: them slide on 5 10 hours a week. So. Totally, totally. So, let me ask you this, a little bit off the uh, out of left field, but what are the some of the challenges that you faced or face now even but originally when you went off on your own? Cuz you work for Microsoft, obviously a very st- established company. A lot of things just sort of happen in the background you don't have to worry about it. As a business owner, as an entrepreneur, what were some of the things that you had to adjust to or figure out a little bit?
1: Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question. It's a lot. So, I mean, you know, from the software thing, the thing I learned out from that software company I had is how important sales and marketing actually is to success. You know, even if you think you have the right product, there's a, you need just as much work on the sales and marketing. Yeah. And so that's some, something in, with this project, I've made, made sure not to make that mistake. Right. You know, really doubling down on that part of the business. Um, another one is just, you know, growing, right? I mean, you have to I like to say kind of growing a company is it's kind of like, you know, I used to do a lot of mountain climbing, but you climb, you know, different hills. So once you get over this hill, then you see the next set of fires. Yeah. Then you kind of glow. And so, you know, and I think too many people, and I see this even with close friends, where they they fixate and think growing, you know, starting a company entrepreneurialism is about having everything figured out. Yeah. It's absolutely not. It's about making sure that you're not going to make a mistake that you're going to completely regret but only doubling down on the fires and everything else is okay. You don't need to figure out every little loose end. It's about kind of really doing the things that matter when they matter more. And it's easier said than done. And it's not that we're perfect, but it's very much needing to be aware of that. And then now kind of where we've gotten to, it's more about, enabling people to be as effective as we were, right? I have to yeah. just not do the things and get out of it because I need to spend my time on other aspects. And that's where kind of mentally we're at now. And, you know, I have a partner on disrupt equity and it's just funny because, you know, I have to kind of pause it and say, okay, we need to let this person run with it. Let's just, whatever they do, they do, right. And then we'll see, and you know, then we kind of give feedback, but really yeah. enabling others is kind of the, the, the new challenge. And so,
0: okay, I've, men- I've mentioned disrupt equity when I did your, your intro. You've mentioned a few times. What Exactly what is it? So people understand what you're talking about. Yeah, so disrupt
1: great question. And I guess a lot of the stuff that I said so far is the combination of disrupt equity and disrupt management. But disrupt equity, long story short, we find investment opportunities, right? Multifamilies are bread and butter, but we're open to other asset classes, whether it's you know storage, office space, etc. And we will basically put together the deal, right? In terms of the financing, you know, sourcing the deal, and then also raising the money. So we do raise our most of our equity with our investors. We invest in every deal as well, but you know, like going back to that analogy earlier, for raising $3 million, right? That's coming from our investor pool, right? And we do have, you know, all sorts of different investors. A lot of them are engineers and doctors, but I mean, up and down the spectrum of people. And then we will buy the asset, operate, implement the business plan, obviously, you know, with the goal of getting returns for people. So that's okay. disrupt equity. Now, out of necessity, we've also started disrupt management, right? And that's where it's, we're seeing kind of the gap in the market. There's not a good management company that's modernized and, you know, it obviously does our deals too. So.
0: Yep. Do you take one-offs and disrupt management or is it just for you guys or large like clients who have a lot of deals? No.
1: So we've, we, I mean, we do third-party management now. So far it's been for friends, people that we know, yeah. right? Or guy like, directly connected to, we haven't done you know, blast of marketing. Cause you know, I'm trying to get all the house in order first, um, but we'll, we'll take on management of deals if they make sense. Right. It's in markets that we're already in. Yeah. Right. Or someone has big enough meat in a market to kind of get into. Right. Gotcha. I'm, Ultimately, it's not called, you know, some random management company. It's called disrupt management, which sometimes I'm like, oh, man, yeah, that's our name. So we have to be, you know, we have to perform, right? Yeah. It really, like, I, yeah. that's what makes me nervous now. So. Yeah,
0: I got it. So you scaled to 1,500 units in less than three years. Talk to me about that. What's involved? That sounds like breakneck. It sounds uh, crazy fast, you know, riding a rocket ship. How, how did you do that and, and stay profitable and efficient and responsible yeah, and all so- that good stuff?
1: No. So, I mean, good question. So we're at 1,500 units now. We actually, we've, we've sold a few deals too. So okay. we've done a few deals full cycle in that timeframe too. So okay. ultimately, I mean, it's about having a good partner and about, you know, performing. I mean, I think it's really, it's about performing. And this is where whenever we first started, we were kind of a breath of fresh air for our investors, right? In terms of, you know, doing things differently, full transparency, full visibility, right? People like that. And then performing, right? Yeah. And telling people you've performed. I think a lot of people that we're, we weren't good at that at the beginning. I'm like, we've home runned our deals. I'm like, we should talk about that more, right? People see that. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to systematizing, right? So actually I mean, you asked about the VAs and I had this train of thought that I lost it. Another thing too, is we underwrite more deals than anyone I know. I mean, I have that systematized from, I spend a lot of my day on the phone with brokers, talk, to figure out what's, what's happening, what deals are blowing up, where my opportunities might be. I get the email. And I can quickly give them feedback because guess what? We have that. We have that button down between the VAs doing the first stab, pulling crime reports, pulling income, all of the things. Even we do have our VAs do the initial plugging in all the numbers in our model, which is kind of complicated. But they, we have one that's buttoned that up, and then yeah. I have my acquisitions guy that kind of then you know sanity checks it all right. But really, it's about systematizing all the parts of the business. And I told this to my partner early on: is you know once we kind of. It's like crossing that first hill. I told him now we're at this weird inflection point where we're either going to drown because we're going to have too much and be able to do it all and grow, mm-hmm. or we're going to have to double down and grow quickly. Yeah. And then when we did that, luckily, you know, we doubled down, and I just remember we were we were turning every stone to find a deal, deals that made sense. We knew we had to buy a few to kind of grow yeah. to where we can support more staff, right? Gotcha. And so for us, I guess the biggest thing is we've we've dumped every dollar back in the company. I mean, we've been very much. That's luckily I have a partner thinks the same way. And, you know, it's been about growing that. And so yeah. rather than me pulling money out, you know, I'd rather go hire on someone that could do it better than me. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: That makes sense. So, so to that end, how do you find investors and, and build those relationships? Like where uh, are, where are you finding these folks?
1: So my favorite investors are the ones that came from their friends. We we did an exercise once where we had like one investor that literally brought on about 20, 30 friends at some point. You just wow. from word of mouth. You really chain it down. Yeah. And so those are the best, right? Whenever you perform, guess what? Those guys want to come in on the next deal and they tell their friends about it. Yep. But, you know, going out to events, right? You know, podcasts like this attract people, right? Yeah. it's more, it goes back to that marketing thing where people should know more about what you do, right? Like me, I mean, I'll be the first one to say, I used to never use Facebook. I never, you know, I just didn't, right? And yeah. but now it's more about kind of building the brand, sharing what we're doing, but add value, right? Do it in a non-spammy way. I think a lot of people think it's gotta be a sales approach, whereas mm-hmm. our methodology has always been very much, how do we teach, educate, add value, And then, you know, that naturally leads into kind of other relationships. Yeah, it's a
0: little bit of the Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Like jab, 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 right hook or whatever. Like just value, 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 you know, before you ever even think about asking for anything. Um, Okay, so I had a question. Now I lost my train of thought. Um, When you – okay, oh, I know I was going to ask you. So are you bringing on like – is it just all like accredited people or are you – openly advertising or like, well, no, so I mean, you for those,
1: it, so for us, it, it's been both, right. It just depends on the deal. Okay. So, you know, some deals you're allowed to market, some deals you're not. And so, I mean, and it's funny because even the deals where we were allowed to market, I feel like we were just so bombed. We didn't even, we didn't even try that. I'm just like banging my head on the wall. Cause I mean, really, I know a lot about online digital marketing and I haven't really been able to use that for, you know, actually raising money on a deal. Right. Yeah. And we just kind of you know, we've just been at the times that we've done the five, it's called the 506C, mm-hmm. right? Where it's accredited only, but you can market it. We just haven't had the time. And so too much okay. kind of was going on and you know, we were able to raise the money without kind of doing it.
0: Okay. Awesome. I, I love that. So sometimes you can reach out. So I know, and just for people know, I like, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think you're a lawyer at just be careful before
1: you start advertising any deals and interest no, rates and returns
0: I mean, and all that. You get so
1: much trouble. Yeah, if, if anyone's raising money, you should absolutely talk to an SEC attorney. I'm happy to make recommendations, right? You know, there is a process to raising money, right? And raising it the right way or not. And there's kind of, there's a lot that goes into structuring. And so people yep. don't realize it, but I mean, any deal that you do, there's just a lot of legal side of things that have to happen yeah. from the contract to getting all the entities created to all the SEC compliance paces to getting all the right filings done. Yeah. And so people, I think some people don't, they think they can kind of glom together some chunks of money, but a lot of people don't think do it the right way. So yeah, totally. there's definitely a method to that madness.
0: Yep. SEC attorney. That's the, that's the takeaway here. Go to them before you start doing anything. Um, all right. So, Let's talk about what do you what what does your business look like today? What's the scope and the I, I don't know it's gonna be numbers, but I mean just like what does it look like today, size wise, and what you're doing, and what do you what's your goal? What's your plan? And how are you going? Yeah, so,
1: no, great question. So I think, you know, currently disrupt as a whole, all right, I've kind of, you know, we've kind of taken the Berkshire Hathaway model is really what I like to say now, because (laughs) disrupt equity was kind of the top, but then there's disrupt management, we have strategic insurance, we have kind of, you know, financing. So we've been able to grow some of these other pieces and, Hmm. you know, across the whole thing is probably about 70 people, right? You know, because management's kind of labor intensive, right? I mean, you have a lot of staff, maybe even more actually, now that I think about it, but it's really, you know, I guess my new train of thought is the guys right now finding deals is hard. I mean, people are buying stuff, but I think it's a lot of the stuff's being overpaid. Cause mm-hmm. like I said, we look at more deals than anybody I know. I mean, I have that stuff down to an art, right. I mean, yeah. like volume wise, right. Yeah, There's a lot of junk out there. People are overpaying. And, you know, if you go back to the gold rush, the people that made the most money in the gold rush are the people selling the tools. Right. It's and I've been really thinking yeah. more in my head about how do we, you know, provide, I think we're kind of in that golden age of syndication, right. Where there's just, you know, cause of, to the, the ability to, for people to learn and get self educated is becoming a lot more available. Yeah. Right. And so I've been really, how do we provide a lot of the right pieces along the way? Syndication in the box, right? where we can add, you know, and add value for every one of them. And then this business grows from that business. And so, yeah. you know, but it's ultimately, it's about making sure you perform each business. He to stand alone, but kind of thinking down that model and building that ecosystem. So, okay. W-
0: what's the goal? You're, uh, what are you going to disrupt oh, I next? Was, like, what's the, I mean, what's the, the, ultimate bo- goal the goal here?
1: for me is to continue to vertically integrate, right. And starting to, you know, as we buy deals I and mean, we're looking at doing more development type of stuff, right. Where the numbers make more sense. Cause the C value is just getting too expensive. I don't know why people would pay that if I get a brand new property for this better price. Um, that's the thing, but really maybe ultimately packaging it up, right. I I don't know where the end goal is, right. It's about building a company that people love working at. That's important to me. Right. And you know, in a culture that people enjoy, I mean, we, I don't make people come into the office. It's very dynamic. I've taken a very yeah. tech approach to it. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, you know, that's been easy to do on the disrupt equity side. The manager side is a little harder to do that, yeah. but really trying to build that. And, you know, I mean, to me, I enjoy building the company and seeing how we can kind of grow. And, you know, for us, we've started, I guess, a hotel now. I haven't even told anyone about this, but we have a kind of charity that we put together too, right? So Disrupt Gives and really thinking about how do we kind of position all these things to where they fund this charity that can kind of then go off and do other more fun things, I guess I'd say. I love, you know, that. and then the, the, the pipe dream is if, you know, you have this whole vertical integrated company and, you know, some big company off of Wall Street decides to get into real estate, well, they can, you know, pick up the full enchilada, right? But yeah. that's 10 years away. Who knows? I
0: love it. I love it. And thanks for just kind of talking about the, the charity real briefly that you do, because I think that's important. People, you know, I think everyone assumes, oh, they just want to hear how much money I'm making or how we're growing and how profitable. Well, honestly, I like, I like talking to people and I like dealing with people who are yeah. you know charity-minded and good people because there's just a lot of you know buttheads out there that are making money that I would just assume not not associate with yeah, so, you know, I
1: think it's a good absolutely. thing absolutely I I prefer, I prefer to be more of just kind of the sleeper and person doing kind of cool things yeah, for me it's, it's for the, sure. the it's the it's the fun of the thrill right the chase is against yeah. that thing and then going off and doing more effective things. Totally. Let's real quick talk about
0: COVID. You're talking about how hard it is right now to buy properties at the right price. And everyone that I've talked to, so no pressure here to be different, but Everyone thinks we're heading for some sort of a correction, a downturn, whatever you want to label it as. Things are not going to stay all this like seller market. Everything's highest it can be. Like, what do you think is maybe coming down the pipe? Knowing we don't have crystal balls, I get that. But yeah. what
1: are you? How are you preparing,
0: and what are you preparing for?
1: Yeah. So, a couple things. I would say, I mean, we are selling a deal right now. I think it's just overpriced right now. There, there was kind of what happened is there was like the rubber band effect, right? everyone stopped in May and June. Now there's all this pent up demand and people are willing to overpay for stuff. And I mean, Hey, we're offloading a deal too. So I get to ride that. But ultimately I don't know what the future holds. So I have kind of two schools of thought, a cash is king, just building up cash across all the properties. Right. Yep. Cause I don't know, you know, especially whenever you have things like the CDC moratorium, right. On evictions, things like that. I don't know how long we have to self-sustain. Right. And we're not getting any sort of discounts or any benefits. Right. And so, yeah you know, cash is king and, you know, educating our investors and saying, look, the money just going to sit there at the property right now. Yes, we can give it out right now, but let's just hold on. Cause we don't know if it's going to be a six month problem, a year problem, a two year problem or a one month problem. Yeah. So I think cash is king. The other side to that too, is just kind of, you know, systematizing what we're doing. I think, I'm glad we have property management house, but really providing resources to tenants, right. The more, cause you know, the thing you gotta realize, I think a lot of people don't realize the more you educate your tenants the better, right? Providing them resources, options, right? And, you know, that's a win-win. And so luckily, you know, that's been working out in our favor. We've had some of the best collections so far, but again, with all the government stimulus money, that makes it easy, right? So I don't really, I I don't really like to like, you know, brag about that. It's not something that impressive, (laughs) honestly. Yeah. Um, But then the big thing to me though, is that you know, a lot of what we invest in is not for the one year horizon, two year horizon. I don't know what the next one or two years looks like. Sure. Right. And frankly, as long as we can sustain, I almost don't care. Right. And so really thinking bigger picture though, all of this money just got pumped into the economy. Yeah. The people that know how to invest will continue to know how to invest. The people that don't know how to invest will continue not to know how to invest. It's, it's sad, but true. Right. Yep. And you know, some people will jump here or there, but that's the general thing. And so that money will trickle up and with 10 year treasuries pretty much useless right that money's going to look to invest in something yep and guess what the only place you're going to get a, a better, you know a, a return that, that is even decent right with real estate i mean it's still strong returns yeah even if that gets you know let's say that 7 cap goes to a 4 cap 4 is still a really high return for someone that's looking at getting a tenure instead right yeah yeah, and yeah. so i think in the long run i think actually real estate probably do very well. I think there's going to be even more cap rate compression, which is sad, but true. Right. But I mean, with interest rates as low as they are right now, I mean, with little you can get 3% interest rate on a 30 year, you know, 10 year note yep. in multifamily that's, yep. with five years interest. Only, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And so that's going to attract people. So I think valuations are going to get even tighter, right? Cap rates are going to compress that's in yep. the long run. So Totally. Yeah, hopefully that's not too no, long. No, no. And hopefully no, it's different it. than what everyone else has been saying. But it's yeah, I don't know what's going to happen in the short term. And, you know, it worries me. It totally, like, it just doesn't make sense to me right now, especially with just the stock market flying. Like, it just doesn't make sense, right? The fundamentals don't make sense. And yeah. so I've been slowly kind of cashing out on that side and just, you know, <laughs> yeah, you well, know, holding on. I mean, I, for me, I just look at it on my personal side. I'd rather just not ride the, the run up that may happen in the next five months or the rundown i just kind of right. sit on the sideline for a little bit
0: well when the fundamentals right, then, you know, are not yeah. making sense you know there's yeah. potentially something wild that's going to happen right it can't the yeah. fundamentals cannot not make sense indefinitely it's, something's going to yeah. change right, right. So, so i love it man so is there how, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested if they want to learn more about disrupt equity or any other disrupt products that you and your vertical integration have um how can the people
1: get a hold of you and learn more Yeah, no, I mean, feel free to reach out. I mean, either Facebook, my LinkedIn, you know, DisruptEquity.com or send me an email, guys. I mean, I'm a pretty open guy and I'm happy to talk. So Ferris, F E R -R A S at DisruptEquity.com. Okay, got it, and we'll
0: get that in the show notes so everyone can find it. If you're driving, running on a treadmill, whatever, don't worry about it. We we'll ha- we got you in the in the show notes. Um, man, Ferris, thanks for being. On. I really do appreciate this. Just ton- a wealth of knowledge. I love talking to people who are came from outside of real estate and they're trying to bring us into the 21st century because I think sometimes we're antiquated in the way we do things unnecessarily. So I think it's awesome what you're doing. It's super exciting. I love I love every part of it. I love how you're like I said, just kind of bringing up the grade a little bit for everybody. So very cool to hear your story. Thanks for being here, man. If uh, ever I can do anything for you, let me know and uh, we'll see you next time.
1: No, thanks for having me, man. Some of the best questions I've been asked. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All
0: right, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. I had a good time in uh, interviewing uh, Ferris, smart guy. I love guys that come from that tech industry and they always see such an opportunity and they should because real estate's a little bit antiquated sometimes (laughs) and you can come in and really disrupt and it's exactly what he named his company. It's exactly what he's doing. He is coming in and trying to help us find a better way, and to find a better way for his company to uh, service investors and and uh, you know his lenders and things. So I love it. Anytime someone comes in and tries to improve in an industry that's a little bit lagging behind at times, it's a cool thing. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that and got something out of it. Uh, I love the part where he's talking about how he started and things that he did right and wrong. It's always important to hear not just the success stories, but. I mean and he's a success story obviously but to hear along the way they they did things that didn't work right because we're all human we all make mistakes so I love hearing that stuff too guys bottom line is it's all good stuff it's all knowledge that you can utilize in your business whether you have one now or you're planning on starting one but nothing happens until you go out there and take action execution is king right so get out there and execute make today the best day go apply this knowledge become better, faster, stronger than you are today, and you will succeed. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next time. Okay, you're still there. You're still listening. That's awesome. And I really appreciate that. Now, hopefully it wasn't an accident. Hopefully you didn't leave the room and I'm just talking to an empty room right now. But assuming you're still there, I want to do something really, really cool for you. For a limited time, I want to give you a free digital download of my book, the entire book, level jumping. If you're a listener to the show, you know it just came out and it really details how I took my business from being like one where I was just doing a few deals a month, maybe one or two deals a month to doing over 10 and sometimes 15 deals a month and over a hundred a year. And I went from doing very little profit to over a million dollars in profit. And I made that transformation in a 12 month period. And this book talks about what I did, the steps I took to transform my business and how you can too. So grab a free digital, download and you can get that by texting the words just start as two words now just start to the number 5544 So text Just Start to 55444. I will send you a free digital download of my book. It's the complete book. There's nothing held back. And that'll be completely yours just for making it to the end of the show and listening to me. And I really, really appreciate it, guys. So I want to do something nice for you. I do this every once in a while at the end of shows. And if you listen to the very end, every once in a while, I do a giveaway like this. So hopefully you enjoy that. Go grab a free copy. I hope you read it. I hope you love it. Reach out, let me know what you think. All right, guys, talk to you next time.